Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new The National Blast podcast with Keenan Skelly. Join Keenan and guests as they blast you to a place that is certainly not boring, yet still giving you highlights from areas in cyber where key policies and legislation are needed, exist, but aren't enforced, or no one is even talking about it. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. V-Armor enables organizations to protect their data, digital assets, and themselves through a complete understanding of all applications and identities and the information relationships between them. Every application, every user, every data element. Learn more at vArmor.com. Hello, everyone. This is Keenan Skelly with the National Blast Podcast, and you are in for quite a treat this week. My guest, whom I've come to know very well over the last couple of weeks and all the amazing things that her country is doing to really make a difference in privacy and cybersecurity, Chris Kubeka is here, and I'm super excited. We are actually going to go down a whole list, a list of every single thing that we've talked about on the National Blast, and she's going to tell us how they're doing it better. Chris, tell us about yourself. My name is Chris Kubeka, and I'm the Distinguished Chair for the Middle East Institute Cyber Program and also the CEO of Hypersec in the Netherlands, and I identify as an ethical hacker. Ethical hacker. That's always that's always fun. I love pulling on that thread. You know, I've had a lot of hackers on this uh, podcast, actually, and I always love it when they identify one way or the other. Um, and then I had one individual that was on, I think it was John, um, who said, we're all just hackers. There's no such thing. You're either a criminal or you're a hacker. And uh, I thought that was really interesting. So for those of you who have been following the podcast, you know, what we talk about here is really a lot of policy and legislation based initiatives that have to do with privacy or security or, you know, a ton of other things that kind of fall into that, specifically where legislation or policy is needed, uh, where it exists but isn't doing its job, or where nobody's even thinking that far ahead yet. So, as I've been talking to Chris, you know, we talked about some of the episodes and the specific, um, you know, topics. And every time I brought one up, she was like, oh yeah, well, we do that better. This is what we do. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I really wanted to dig through that. So we're actually going to start at the very beginning of, you know, the first episode that I had on the national blast with, uh, Caitlin Bowden, who was talking about revenge porn legislation. And Chris and I just started talking about this and she was like, yes, we do it better. Um, and it's it's something that's a bit mind boggling, quite frankly, because uh, the Netherlands and a few other uh, European Union countries uh, have ruled that things like revenge porn or extorting people for uh, pornographic images and so forth fall under a bevy of different legislation. It could be cyber stalking. It could be harassment. Uh, it could be <clears throat> cyber bullying. Uh, an invasion of privacy, all of these things. And I, I find it absolutely uh, frustrating that uh, such things are not illegal in the United States. Because, I mean, why should somebody use your image without your permission? 
you did not consent to it. Uh, you did not, for example, go into a relationship. And the first thing they show you is on your phone saying, by being in a relationship, you consent to all photographs uh, that <laughs> I take or you take to be used at my leisure or however I want. That is not the case. And these things can have some very serious consequences. One of the reasons why we have legislation like this in the Netherlands is because there was a case uh, between an American and a Dutch person and uh, I can't remember which way it went, but uh, basically an adult was involved, uh, was uh, blackmailing or uh, threatening uh, people, girls, uh, saying, if you don't send me these images, I'm going to tell your parents, I'm going to you know, tell everybody, blah, 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 blah. So some of the girls uh, did send images in because they were scared. Yeah. And uh, one of the girls actually killed herself. Oh, my gosh. And this can be a very dangerous thing. Another thing that uh, has to be considered is we, for the most part, the listeners live in a more westernized culture, <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that everybody who lives in our countries uh, necessarily respects women. So uh, we've come into these situations and had these circumstances where uh, you may have immigrant families uh, even third generation, and if a relationship goes sour and a picture is posted, there's this terrible thing called honor killings. And it actually puts oh, wow. uh, women at risk to where family members will kill them because they didn't uphold this uh, level of honor that they uh, put on many women as an extreme double standard. That's horrible. I, I mean, that's just absolutely horrible. And, you know, I, I'm sure that that probably happens in the United States also, but because we're not even looking at that problem at all in terms of federal legislation, um, we're not actually getting any data about the depth of the problem. And I, I really appreciate, you know, your view on that. And, you know, I'm just saying USA, we can do well, better. you know, gentlemen, uh, that are listening and that may have some pool with this and with their friends and so forth. Remember, would you want your ex-girlfriend showing off a picture of your wee wee um, <laughs> and maybe even photoshopping it to make it look really small and then plastering it across different types of social media or sending to your family and friends. So it can happen to anyone. It's not just women. Absolutely. And it is something that is vengeful. So think about the picture of your thing and how it could be misused. <laughs> And maybe decorated with, I don't know, Snapchat filters. And, oh, I have so many ideas here now. Right? It is Halloween. You could put it in a little costume. It, oh, it could be a vampire. <gasps> there, I said it. <laughs> <laughs> so for anybody who knows me or has known me for more than five minutes, you'll know that I get totally into Halloween. And it is, of course, Halloween coming up this week. And I am full-blown into Halloween. So I'm here for Snapchatting, you know, vampire wee-wees um, whenever necessary. <laughs> so uh, let's, let's go to kind of a, a, another episode uh, that I, I talked with uh, Elizabeth Wharton from Scythe about. Um, she's absolutely genius when it comes to privacy and all of the crazy things that are happening in privacy law and all the things that are not happening in terms of, you know, a general uh, federal level um, privacy policy, right? Um, so we talked about digital IDs, uh, driver's license, passports, COVID passports um, being used by Apple on your Apple phone and 
them, Apple, getting it approved legally so that you're holding all of these documents on your phone. And that gets really interesting for a lot of reasons. You know, one, obvious, the, the general privacy parts of this where, you know, putting that kind of detail on your phone, what happens if you run out of juice and you lost your charger and now you don't have your ID? Do you get arrested? Do you get, you know, what happens then? What happens if you're in a car accident and um, you are not capable of opening your phone, but the police officer holds it up to your face and it opens and now they have access to everything on your phone. So if you were doing something, let's say shady that caused you to get in an accident, well, now you've just handed them all the details and said, here you go, investigate at will, along with everything else that's on your phone. So there's a lot of thoughts you know, and feelings about this. People want more convenient. They want things that are easier to use. They want most you know, generations below me want everything to be super simple and, you know, on this thing right here, this iPhone. But there, there's the rest of us who kind of grown up in a different world and different perspective, especially in Europe, um, that don't see it that way. Tell me a little bit about what that's like over there. Well, I, I think it uh, goes back to World War II and after World War II, where, uh, for uh, example, unfortunately, the Nazis, uh, when they took over various countries, uh, countries then were even using various uh, technologies, such as punch card technology, and they would register their citizens and register their information all the way back to their grandparents, which included things like religion, ethnicity, etc. You see where I'm going here. Unfortunately, those particular countries, when the Nazis came in, they could just pinpoint exactly the people that they they didn't like. So for example, 92% of the Jewish population was uh, bye-bye in the Netherlands because they used that registry database, Um, as well as other people, Jehovah Witnesses, uh, certain types of Catholicism uh, was frowned upon, Slavic people, et cetera, et cetera. And they were just given this open book of, who do we want today? Right. And this uh, system was actually, I won't mention the name of the company because many of you probably know, but it was a U.S. tech company that provided the computing power for this. And it's very problematic. Then after World War II, when the Soviets expanded into a large part of Europe, uh, then you had the situation like in Eastern Germany where the Stasi was around and it was Mm -hmm. the secret police. And they estimated that even if you didn't work for the Stasi, you were expected as a citizen to report to the Stasi. So one in three people in East Germany either worked for or collaborated with the Stasi talking about what did the neighbors argue about? Who did you see with this person? No one could trust anybody. No one felt any privacy. And imagine living in that type of surveillance state 24 by seven. So it, you know, can give you the shivers. And uh, so. And Americans really have never been through anything like that. They just haven't. I mean, I would say the closest to that was probably the Cold War where, you know, everything was information, 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 but compared to 
World War II compared to, you know, the example of Germany, it's just not even in the same ballpark in terms of the level of surveillance, what they know about you, what you're doing, when you're doing it, who you're doing it with, everything. And I think Americans often take that for granted, which is why we see generations now who, who don't understand why privacy is important and why they shouldn't have everything on their iPhone and why they shouldn't spend their entire lives in front of the video camera, you know, on Snapchat and all of those other types of things because they just don't get it. Yep. And another thing to consider is you never know who might be in power next. So if, for example, Apple wants to ensure that they can still do business in a particular country and that country switches power and they go, if you still want to sell your devices here, you have to share all the data on our citizens and people, even visitors within our borders. Mm -hmm. Trust me, it's already happened, including with Apple in certain countries. So suddenly your life, what you thought used to be legal, um, suddenly is not. If we look at the Iranian issue where women could wear bikinis before, and now if you get caught with a picture of you without a hijab, you can be arrested and tortured and disappeared. And the same kind of thing happening in Afghanistan now, you know, uh, three months ago, uh, women were teaching at university and going to, to class. And now that's illegal and punishable by death. So yeah. uh, the international, you know, political climate is always changing and it always will be changing. And while the West continues to really push on technology for the idea of freedom, for the idea of freedom of information, for the idea of, you know, let's make life easy. They just don't take into account what else is out there, what else could be done with this. And that I think that's been, you know, uh, something that history has learned over and over again. You know, you have um, Albert Einstein working on the H-bomb and, and then in retrospect saying, wow, that was that was a really bad idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, we can't tell the future, but we have seen instances where we can go by and go, you know, this kind of happened in history. I mean, history doesn't repeat, it rhymes, but maybe we should take a look at it because the same type of thing or something similar could happen here. So maybe we should, I don't know, have some regulations, have some policy, um, think about what'll happen if it does happen and plan accordingly. And this is where Americans are totally different than the rest of the world too, is as soon as you say regulation, as soon as you say law, as soon as you say something like that, our inner roots, our, you know, our rebel, rebel um, ancestors who were like, no, I mean, we don't want to be a part of this. We don't, we don't do this here. We don't want anything. We want no taxes and we want to have guns and we want to do all the stuff. That's what comes out in <laughs> us. And we're like, no, I don't have to do that. Except that you do. And, you know, over time, things that are um, really required for safety purposes are eventually regulated. Like, you know, the car, when the, the, the first automobiles came out, they weren't regulated. You could drive wherever the heck you wanted to. And the, there weren't roads. So, I mean, anywhere you wanted to was pretty much anywhere. But eventually they said, okay, this is getting dangerous. People are getting killed a lot. <laughs> People are driving really intoxicated during prohibition and you're not even supposed to be drinking, but we need to do something about this. And then now we have regulations and laws around what you can and can't do in a motor vehicle. You have to be licensed to operate a motor vehicle. Now, when you say that to some people who think that regulation is just absolutely horrifying, um, they're like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense because that's for safety. Well, that's usually what regulation is for, is for the general 
safety of you know the the population but it's an interesting argument to get into yeah definitely i mean I, i'm a big believer that privacy equals safety and security and also do you really want to trust a particular tech company to know everything about you and of course they're going to sell that data to marketers. And also what happens if they get hacked and then there's an entire database dump with your medical history. Maybe you got an STD check and you're married. Yeah, I, um, I had another episode with Liz recently about Amazon Astro. And this is exactly, you know, what we're talking about. And you and I have talked about this before, and I've talked about this with others, you know, the concept of normalizing the breach, you're going to get breached. Apple, you're going to get breached. Uh, Amazon, you're going to get breached. It's, it's, it's going to happen. How sure are you that you are protecting everything about an individual that needs to be protected to keep them safe? That's why I really like your concept of privacy equals safety. I think that's huge. And we should start thinking about it that way. Absolutely. So uh, the next one is very specific about the CFAA and we're going to save that to last because I've got a solid like four episodes on this. And I know you and I can talk about this for a hot minute. So (laughs) we're going to skip that one for now and go to privacy and AR, VR and XR with, uh, with Suchi. And, um, and it's really interesting when you start thinking about the rise in all of these things in video games in work environments in, everything. What is the privacy guideline there? What if you build your own? What, what, you can just do anything now? Well, um, in the European Union, not quite. Uh, You still own your biometric data. And if another company is holding it, like Facebook Oculus, then you have the right to access that data. And I think that's important because more and more, um, we might be here but imagine an entire digital identity built around uh, what you like, where you surf, and your biometric data. I mean, we've already seen uh, Microsoft apply for a patent on uh, making a chatbot after you are dead using all of your information to then interact with people. I'm pretty sure I saw that episode of the Black Mirror, and it didn't end yeah, well. It did not end well. And uh, unfortunately, um, that's the way it is. And I remember years ago, I met Charlie Brooker uh, at the all-party parliamentary group on artificial intelligence. And we were at a party. And uh, one of his comments, uh, when I asked him about, about Black Mirror and the technology, he goes, you know, when I thought about it, I didn't think it would actually um, kind of come to fruition. I thought it would just be a little too far-fetched, but almost everything <laughs> is actually coming to fruition. You know, um, Star Trek said that back in the day, like way back in the day, they said, you know what, this is all fiction, right? These things aren't possible. And now here we are today living with the very things that somebody thought were going to be absolute, just nonsense forever. And that's how science works as people are inspired. Uh, that's how technology works. People are inspired by the things around them. And yeah, of course, people are going to do shady stuff with it. They just are. That's what they do. Yes. Unfortunately, human nature is how can I take advantage of a situation to benefit me? I mean, even in business speak, we talk about the the word exploit. Let me exploit that opportunity. It isn't just hacker speak, but, you know, MBAs use it all the time. Oh my, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you can't see me, but I'm nodding my head fervently right now because of this. <laughs> um, 
Okay. So, so that, that was a really interesting one. And I'm glad to know that there are people, um, you know, elsewhere in the world who are thinking about the consequences of this, especially this digital identity. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you were ever a Battlestar Galactica fan. Oh, um, yes. Did you see Caprica? Yes. Oh my gosh. Every time I hear that, every time I have that conversation, I think of Caprica and suddenly this whole digital world being created. And while uh, I know a lot of people think that would be super cool, like totally ready player one, um, <laughs> there's a lot of really creepy things that can happen with that. And we need to really think that through before we just throw that technology out in the wild and say, here, go build something um, dangerous. Yes. It's like uh, leaving a bunch of scissors around with kids unattended. You know they're going to run with those scissors. Yeah. You can't stop them. No. <laughs> you should know better than to put the scissors right there. So the next, um, the next kind of episode uh, I did uh, for Black Hat for the ICS Village with Bryson Bort, I was talking about all of the great things that uh, the ICS Village particularly is doing, along with some other organizations like Grimm. Um, you know, really working to ensure that when it comes to SCADA systems, when it comes to OT, that there are processes in place, that there are hackathons, that we're constantly thinking about these issues. And I'm dying to know how you guys deal with ICF security. Well, uh, it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, so for the most part, there's a good deal of public-private uh, partnership. Uh, there's been a requirement in the Netherlands that companies of X size or make um, a certain amount of money and the threshold's kind of low, that they must have a responsible disclosure program. And in addition to that, the telecommunications companies, which all of this stuff will connect to, um, actually uh, can alert and tell them, hey, you know, um, we can't disconnect you, but I'm telling you right now, we don't really want you to keep connected with the way this looks. Um, and we, we see that this is you know, very dangerous. And so uh, they have the ability, the freedom, since this is an American show, <laughs> um, to be able to do that. So yeah. it's, it's skewed a bit differently. And also, even though there's a good deal of infrastructure and OT that is privately owned. There's also a lot that is publicly owned. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that that helps a bit more. And there's this thing called regulation. Oh, <laughs> didn't say it out loud. <laughs> it's, you know, around Halloween. I want to scare everyone. <laughs> well, you didn't scare me. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how many people in real life listen to this and then jump back. I know. <laughs> You know, um, so here in the U.S., it's really interesting. And, you know, I, I did work at DHS for a while and I spent a lot of time with critical infrastructure in my lifetime and doing assessments and, you know, trying to come up with a way for private public partnerships to really coexist. But it's the same kind of mindset that we talked about before in an American world where you start talking about regulation. It's this is going to affect my business. And I understand that as a business owner, that as soon as you start making me do things for security. Security, making me do things for protection, that's money that I can't spend on giving raises to my employees. That's money that I can't use to give them bonuses at the end of the year. And that's kind of the mindset where this come from, comes from. Uh, like I can barely pay to do the things that I have to do to run this nuclear power plant. So uh, there, There's one good thing. So if the Netherlands government says, you know what, we're going to put out this new regulation, it's going to cost businesses X amount of money. And to make sure that it's done, we're going to give your business the same amount of money that it will cost to implement. So exactly. you don't have to you know, lay off people. You don't have to 
pretend you did it with a, a, a fake a self-assessment. It's like buying a fake COVID vaccine card. Right. Um, so they actually I just drew mine in crayon. Right. Yeah. Right. So when they pass that, they have to do a study and talk to uh, private industry and go, okay, we think it's going to be X amount of money, but in order to do this and put this regulation in, we actually have to earmark the money mm-hmm. and then help businesses pay for it. Absolutely. I, I hope everyone in the Washington, D.C. metro area is listening. This is so important. You know, I talk about this on the show all the time about the carrot and the stick and finding people indefinitely is not going to work. I mean, eventually they'll just say, okay, whatever, we'll, we'll get insurance to cover the fines, right? But if you give them something to mitigate what they're losing, that it makes all the difference in the world. And I think that definitely applies when we start talking about critical infrastructure, when we're talking about how, uh, and we're going to talk about here in a few minutes, breach verification reform, um, you know, how these kinds of things can be balanced out so that everybody wins. And I think that's a that's a struggle here. It's something we've we've tried um, for several years with DHS to work through. And I'm I'm, I'm very confident, however, that uh, Jen is on the right track, and and her predecessor Chris uh, was definitely on the right track. So I I think that we're getting there. I think we're getting to a point where we can have that kind of thing. But it still comes down to the laws, right? And and where that's at. Oh my gosh! So this one's really interesting. Uh, so. Also during Black Hat, um, I talked to uh, a friend of mine, uh, the CEO of VArmor and um, the, one of the co-founders of the Cyber Mentor Fund. And um, as an investor, as a VC um, investor in the community, um, I had seen a few days before that, that the third or fourth, I think it was the fourth VC entity had been ransomware in the last year, starting in January. Um, And these were big, big VC companies. These were companies that probably had something in place where security was, you know, looked at, or they may have even caught it and done something about it. But the reality is that in the investment community and the VC community, especially, it it could just be a two-person shop, right? And they have laptops and that's it. And their wife is the sysadmin, which means that she knows how to turn the computer on. Um, and yet, and yet, and yet these companies who are, you know, providing all of this money and it goes for PE firms too, all of this money and taking, not taking, I should say getting all of this data on their portfolio companies. And I mean, deep data, who the people are, uh, all the financials, you know, their business model, how they do this, how, how they do that. And yet, and I can speak to this very, very clearly as a, um, as a CEO of a company who's actively looking for funding. Ooh. Dramatic pause. <laughs> and I'm talking, you know, to, to th- these VC companies regularly, and no one wants to sign an NDA. So they say, they say, just yeah, send over your financial model for the next five years, your list of customers, you know, how much money you guys are bringing in, dot, 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 dot. I'm like, great, I would like an NDA. Well, we don't sign NDAs. <laughs> I mean, if we sign an NDA for everybody, I'm like, okay, but I want an NDA because. I happen to know how unprotected this particular sector is. And I'm running a business where I want our information protected as much as possible. And they just look at you like, oh my God, what is she talking about? This is crazy. So Tim and I talked about this and we came up with a really amazing idea for a VC ISAC where we can kind of kick off something for the community where they would have 
uh, an understanding of some basic security principles, things that they should have in place, and you know maybe point them in the direction of organizations that can do security measures for them because that needs to happen. I mean, when we're talking about even at the the PE level, at the VC level, and at the PE level, you know we're talking about billions of dollars, and that that's like that's a huge hit to the economy if if that kind of trend continues. So I'm dying to know. How do you guys deal with that kind of stuff? Well, first, I just want to say, if I was not an ethical hacker, I would have a really juicy target to look at. Um, hmm. Yeah. Do I really want to stay on the good side or do I want a <laughs> private island? It does uh, sound fruitful, doesn't it? Right. And in a country with no extradition. Yeah, I can do that. Hmm. Um, so if I'm thinking that way, um, other people obviously are going to be targeting it. Uh you know, from the nation state, depending on the type of intellectual property, down to the cyber criminals, uh, down to uh, very curious people. And um, the thing is, it's very difficult because we kind of look at it from the opposite point of view of uh, there are certain, again, laws, uh, uh, which uh, basically uh, state, uh, if you are trusting your data with someone, they have to have a basic level of security. Because if they don't, they are responsible for... Oh, that uh, would be so nice. So That would be lovely. Instead, I end up uh, doing talks the other way around to go, hey, VCs, before you invest in this great sounding little company, make sure they have cybersecurity so that what you are investing in that intellectual property doesn't go out the window. So it's opposite world. Yeah. And that's, you know, I will say this, there are, you know, some of the top cybersecurity investors and VC companies who come from cybersecurity and have been brought up in the community and are probably, you know, some of the smartest people in the the industry right now, their organizations tend to have very strict cybersecurity, you know, checklists and things where they can say, all right, if we're even going to start looking at you as a company, no matter what, you know, this is the list of 57 things that you have to have done to protect your own data because we don't want to be at risk. And that's that's the way it should be. Absolutely. Um, but again, we're all free wheeling over here in America. Whoo, we're having a good time. Oh boy. So how many of you that have the money to invest or start your own company would marry somebody after a week without doing a background check and a prenup? Oh shit. <laughs> right? I'm like, wait, that was my second husband. Um, so, you know, I mean, these are things that we, we think about, uh, there's a whole industry in the United States built upon doing background checks on someone you might want to date or someone who might, uh, babysit your children or whatever, or whatever. Uh, but yet, Oh, that brings up a whole other talk. I'd love to chat with you about, and that is those kinds of things specifically, what kind of privacy requirements do they have? If you can do a background check on anybody and reach out and touch their entire history, what is that a good thing? I feel like it's maybe not. I maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, I picked up um, doing a random search on my name because you know you never know. Sometimes you have to check, and right. if you haven't googled yourself, Google yourself. Just right. just because. <laughs> And I recently, a couple of weeks ago, found one of these uh, organizations that pretended to piece my life together and said that I was worth a minimum of five million. 
well, that would be nice. <laughs> um, great. great. But now that means I'm on some list, which means I could then be a target because I might have this imaginary money, which I don't have. I will be starting a GoFundMe after this. Um, so, you know, it, it can have all of this inaccurate data. Plus, it can give away information that you don't want to be given away, such as who needs to know who your children are, who needs to know about your elderly mom listed as 95 years old in the house next to you, because guess what? I'm going to try to tell them that they have a virus on their toaster. Did these people not see Sleeping with Enemy? I mean, I feel like just seriously, go yep. watch the movie. You'll get it little bit of an idea about how protective you should probably be about some of your stuff. Yes. Yes. So I find it uh, very strange um, that in the U S that's allowed um, and in other places it is not <laughs> for yeah. obvious reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I've got one more before we get into the meat and I know this is going to be a super long episode and I don't care because it's amazing and fascinating to me that other places in the world have figured out all of these things and we still struggle. So, um, did we talk about international coordination? I don't think oh, not yet. So, um, another one of my favorite episodes with, uh, Andrea little Lombago, we talked right after the G seven about all of the things that kind of came out of that. Right. And, and how international corporate, uh, cooperation for cybersecurity was going to be really ramped up. And, you know, some, some folks, some, you know, nation state leaders throughout the words hack back and, you know, things happen and requests were made and, and, and. So what we really talked about was realistically, How's that going to play out with the U.S. and the rest of the world? And it, it, there's a lot of questions there because there's a lot of, as we've talked about already on this episode, there's a lot of perception differences between what is privacy and what is security and what should be shared and what shouldn't be shared. And, and how do you mm -hmm. fuse that into uh, the European kind of thinking. Um, so we had all of our ideas and you should definitely go listen to that episode, but I'm dying to know how you guys actually do international cooperation, especially when it comes to cybersecurity. Well, um, now we've got, obviously we're, we're more like a, a federation inside mm -hmm. the European Union and some countries are a federation inside a federation. Mm -hmm. um, so it can be very interesting, but um, the European Union has been trying to work more with the US and uh, in a previous administration, uh, they were not too hopeful that there would be a lot of joint cooperation. Mm -hmm. I um, helped with the EU NATO cyber warfare exercises in Brussels a few years back, and we actually had part of our script written uh, a letter. We could not find anyone in time to do the voice of the president, um, <laughs> but it but it uh, basically said, oh, these tragedies have occurred in the European Union. We feel really bad for them, but... Um, Last time I was uh, at NATO headquarters, I told them they needed to spend more money. And, you know, it's time for Europe to stand on its own two feet. Hmm. American blood will not be spilled. <laughs> um, so <laughs> yeah, the expectation. Sorry, for those of you who maybe have never participated in a tabletop exercise of this nature where, you know, you get to make up all kinds of fun stuff and be like, 
you know what? The world is in chaos. It's in shambles. It's totally a post-apocalyptic world. And the nukes took everything out, but somehow cyber survived. Uh, really a lot of fun. And I highly recommend any policymakers or um, lawmakers out there that if you have not participated in a cyber tabletop exercise, please do so. Contact me for more info. Yeah. So uh, more recently, um, there has been a lot of hope that there would be more cooperation. Now, in the not too distant past, oh, COVID with the timeline really messes you up. Uh, but just before uh, this whole, you know, world almost crashed to an end this time, uh, there was a, an article that was put out about how the Netherlands, which it's the first country that actually is allowed to hack back by um, the Dutch police or the Dutch government under a warrant from a Dutch prosecutor's office helped uh, the American government by hacking into IoT cameras in Russia to get video evidence of certain types of propaganda and hacking on US companies so there was no denying it. And so the Dutch was like, yeah, we'll do you a favor, man. Do, 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 do. There, there you go. go. <laughs> Video evidence, baby. Everything that you just said is magical to me. It's absolutely magical. And it goes, you know, to one of the other things that really drives me crazy in this space. And, and we won't talk about it today, but maybe another time we'll, <laughs> we'll chat about it. And that's the extradition, right? Being able to get evidence, being able to get people to talk to and, it's interesting to me that as America, you know, we were typically very, I'm not sure I want to use that word. Um, yeah, I do. We're very balls out, right? <laughs> In terms of what we're kind of thinking of doing and uh, and how we want to do that. And there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to that, because when you run that kind of strategy, um, you know, you're basically telling the enemy everything that you're doing, right? You're giving them an upfront. And sometimes, and, and, Typically in the past, that turns into deterrence, which works very well, but that's not the reality that we live in. So when it comes to, you know, coordinating with other countries and asking other countries like, hey, we have evidence that this is going on in your country. We need to extradite this human. We need to say he's not only, she's not only, they're not only affecting one country, they're affecting 17 countries. And that is having an impact on the global economy. And we, as you know, global you know entity, we need to get better at that cooperation. That's where I see this really break down when it comes to how the U.S. is engaging or had been engaging previously. But I think we're getting better on that. I know, you know, last week uh, it might have been the week before because COVID time, uh, but there was um, there was the the White House meeting with a lot of tech folks and international community folks and IC folks to really talk about what extradition looks like for a cyber criminal what 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 are the key issues what are the points what are the how many countries do they have to have, have hacked is it a dollar number what is it um, and they're starting to kick off those conversations so I'm really excited to hear that I'm really hoping that um, you know that that comes more quickly than than some other things that are being worked on right because if you disincentivize a criminal, and there's not that many places to hide, then people are going to be like, maybe I can't buy that private island in a non-extradition country by hacking into a VC and stealing all their stuff. Exactly. So why don't you wait till I do that? As long as it's not <laughs> grandfathered in, all right, just I'll support you. Heads up before. <laughs> okay. 
And and that's exactly what happens. You know, um, I, I talked about this in a previous uh, talk this year about how there are massive, massive cyber criminals who know this very well and are in countries specifically because they know that they're not going to get extradited. But above and beyond that, the countries themselves won't do anything to arrest them because they're not attacking the homeland, right? They're not, they're not doing any threats to that country in which they're living. So why would they? As soon as they extradite, then they're open, you know, they're free game. And it's creating a very interesting, almost semi-state-sponsored kind of reality in cybersecurity. And um, yeah, that's not that's not cool. Not cool at all, man. Okay. We are now getting to the good stuff. Breach, verification, reform. All y'all know, I have some ideas and some thoughts about this topic, like some serious, been writing white papers and restructuring government entities in my mind to make this like something that really makes sense. There are a lot of problems with breach verification in the U.S., just to kick off a couple of them, uh, most of the people that actually report cybersecurity breaches, and I believe it's 75 to 80%, but I have to check it often because it goes up regularly, are security researchers or hackers. Good guy hackers, not bad guy hackers, but hackers, not criminals. Those are the people who are finding the vulnerabilities. Those are the people who are finding the bad guys. Those are the people who are saying, hey, your stuff is out there and you need to take care of it. And yet, Due to, uh, an, at this point, ancient regulation, the CFAA, uh, they can be prosecuted. So right now in the United States, there's this whole like drama and trauma around having a breach. If you are breached, and let's just say some somebody reaches out to you and reaches out to your CISO and says, hey, um, I just found your data like in the dark web, and I think you guys need to really look at it and take care of it. The first phone call after that phone call is to the team of lawyers to say, how do we, how do we totally hide this and, and never let anybody see anything and nothing happened, nothing happened, right? And the reason for that is they know they're going to get fined. They, they know they feel like the, the country is going to come down on them and really torture them for having this breach of information. But the fact is, everybody's going to get breached, normalize the breach. But for the hacker or for the security researcher or for even the company that is looking into that and reporting that information back because of the CFAA, they are able to actually accuse that person of doing the hacking themselves or that company of doing the hacking themselves. Because if you are crazy enough and hackers beware, hackers beware. If you're crazy enough to validate the data that you see as you know, a good researcher would before you hand it over to the company, then you have officially violated the CFAA. Now, the first thing that the company is doing with their team of lawyers is saying, how can we pin this on this person? How can we make sure that this person signs an NDA and never speaks of this again and disappears into an island in the middle of nowhere? I don't care. Just whatever, make it go away. And, you know, three, how can we use this to our advantage as we are in our fear state of we can't get anything done, our lives are ruined, our, our publicity is going to go through, you know, out the wall, our customer base is going to dwindle. No, no, people know. So I, I, like I said, I have lots of thoughts and ideas in this and I'm, I'm constantly shouting about it. But after talking to Chris, 
and how they deal with this is just fascinatingly beautiful. Please, please tell us more. Well, first, I want you to normalize a new term, hacker responder. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. It has it has the um, the effect of a a fireman or a policeman. Exactly. Someone but now, yes, right. But now you can think of a hacker responder, hoodie wearing, armed with a computer, trying to help you out. Yes, right. I like it. So um, one of the reasons why I do enjoy uh, living in the Netherlands and why I do. of my research there is because let's see, I'll tell you a little story. So a few years back, um, I uh, legally and ethically hacked into Boeing. Uh, I was able to get into their entire research and development, flight code, everything. Um, And uh, they didn't even encrypt their website, uh, boeing.com at the time. Uh, So you can imagine how, how easy it was, uh, you know, spoof a CEO's email address. Uh, even a journalist checked that it was, it was quite terrible. And, um, they handle classified and unclassified stuff, right? Awesome. Right. Cool. So, um, I was like, wow, this is kind of shocking. I mean, I even did the same thing. The governor of Missouri is saying is hacking. (laughs) Um, I right clicked. Tell me. Uh, yeah, and I, I I read the HTML source code on the aviation ID system, and I found a comment from the programmer that says, "I have no idea what this does. It just says null," which meant that they didn't escape special characters on the sign in for the aviation ID system, which is where you download stuff as a technician to then upload uh, to I don't know an airplane. Um, you know, to upload the, uh, I don't know, control software, little things, little things, you know, nothing major, nothing major. So, um, I wrote up my report. I first, I had tried to get a hold of them, um, was completely unsuccessful. So I went to Twitter and I said, Hey, does anybody know anyone at Boeing? I'm going to be doing this talk at the ICS village. (laughs) Um, and I'd like to really get a hold of somebody because it it hasn't been very successful. So then I got contacted immediately. Um, and they were like, Hey, let's, let's talk. And I thought thought that I was talking to an ISAC. Unfortunately, the aviation ISAC is actually kind of owned by Boeing and run by Boeing employees. Um, So I was not aware of this, but I was given the heads up, don't talk to them. I was like, (laughs) okay. So messages started streaming in and then uh, US CERT contacts me. They're like, yeah, anyway. um, (laughs) they, They sent me an email basically saying, if anyone bullies you, um, please tell us their name. We're going to turn it into a teaching moment for Boeing. Oh my goodness. So this was after two planes had dropped out of the air, killed over 300 people, you know, all, all, all good times. All good times. Right. So um, when I wrote my report, I put in the heading, uh, or excuse me, the introduction, I've done all my research in the Netherlands. I'm a Dutch resident and I have abided by Dutch law. And I'm responsibly disclosing to you in a secure manner. And U.S. Cert's like, why don't you give it to us first? Because we're going to make sure certain things are fixed. Uh, The next thing I found was that Boeing had a holding company in the Netherlands 
uh, which we have all these weird tax things, right? Oh, so wow. they, they were putting their money through the Netherlands so that they barely paid any taxes. But because of the amount of money that they were putting through, they fell under Dutch law, which stated that they had to have a secure <laughs> manner for responsible disclosure. Um, and wow. so I put that in the report as well. Um, so it was, you know, very, we, very we like to say- thorough. Dutch. Some people say blunt, but I ain't going to jail for this man. (laughs) (laughs) So um, U.S. CERT worked with me. Uh, Boeing was not pleased. And uh, from. (laughs) And here come the lawyers. (laughs) Right. So so I'm in Vegas. Right. There for hacker summer camp and trying to have a good time. And I even got a a couple of uh, roommates uh, in the the hotel room because, you know, you're all sweaty hackers, it's fine. And um, so a Boeing employee uh, actually came to my hotel and tried to get me to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, no, because I'll tell you right now, everything was done under Dutch law and an NDA in this manner is considered censorship, which is illegal in the Netherlands. Oh, man. I will not be signing your NDA because they wanted me to sign this in hopes that U.S. CERT would magically make it go away, which wasn't going to happen, really? um, and that no one else would, would ever find out and they would never have to fix anything. Yep. And that was their angle. So then they... Uh, a lot and that, of by st- the way, I, that, by the way, is the status quo. That is the operating mode of most companies. Yes. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So along the way, I was also threatened and was told if any security researcher divulges any vulnerabilities about Boeing, we will turn our entire legal and PR apparatus against them. Okay. (laughs) So they tried to tell the um, U.S. government that I was a criminal hacker and um, so I, uh, I'm a bit cheeky. And earlier that year, really? I, right? I had taken a picture of General Nakasone, the NSA director at a closed conference we were at. And I go, oh, you think I'm a criminal, huh? I sent them a picture and I go, if you want, I could get you his autograph. <laughs> so I bet that went over well. Yeah. You know, um, you can't see it, but I'm cranking this particular middle finger up right now. Um, So, you know, that I have the free, well, freedom. I was following the law in the Netherlands. I could never have gotten away with that in the United States. Oh, no. So then later after Boeing was like, yeah, we'll finally put, I don't know, HTTPS Boeing.com. Um, you know, little things. And, uh, they're like, because of, you know, Chris is saying we, we now have a responsible disclosure, uh, program, even though the PGP key that they used was just gibberish. It wasn't a real key, (laughs) but whatever. (laughs) So then, um, afterwards, um, a few months afterwards, uh, the government asked me again, hey, could you, would you mind taking a look because you're back in the Netherlands to see if they fixed anything? And somehow I immediately found unencrypted with no login an in-cabin viewing system for IoT cameras oh. on the planes. Oh, my God. Really? Oh, yes. That's the next level. Right. So I sent it to the, the U.S. government. Uh, they contact Boeing about it. Boeing's like, what she did was illegal. We would never have something unencrypted screenshot unencrypted. <laughs> like, really? Dude, <laughs> dude it's like Ta-da. right here, right here. And uh, so <clears throat> I was getting peeved at being slandered because uh, Chris don't play that game. 
And uh, so I ended up uh, having three law firms in the U.S. offer uh, to represent me pro bono. And so I, I wrote an email back stating this, that I have three law firms that are willing to uh, do this. So if, if basically come at me, bro, you want to go, let's go, <laughs> right? Let's go, yo. And they backed off because they, um, I even spoke to the Dutch prosecutor who publicly stated, I did not do anything illegal. I followed the law. And the only thing that was done, um, not illegally, but against regulation was Boeing uh, and their failure to uh, follow Dutch law. That's that's crazy. <clears throat> but you know what? Th- this is that story is is even though you were under Dutch law and even though you had all of these protections, all of those things play out exactly the same with every time you know somebody brings forward a breach or breach information in the United States. And it's it's getting ridiculous. We, we have to get past this. We have to normalize the breach. We have to make companies comfortable enough with saying, yeah, I got hacked. I need help. Um, like CISA or you know DHS or whomever. Um, can you come in and see what's going on here? And we're not going to be afraid of you doing that because you're going to help us to actually secure things and you're going to help give us funding and grant funding to help us make sure that this doesn't happen again. Unlike some companies who are now being breached for the fifth, sixth, seventh time in the last decade, right? Equifax. I mean, it's just not working. It's not working. So we have to do this better. We have to have a better plan and it can't be find the giant companies like Boeing because they don't care. It's just a fine. Yeah. One of the things I like about uh, the Dutch regulations, I think it was put in about eight years ago, was uh, written with the help of ethical hackers. And if you look at the guidelines, it's PDF. They actually have in each section pictures of famous Dutch ethical hackers. That's awesome. <laughs> and some of them are wearing like costumes. One guy's got a cowboy hat. Another guy's got a, uh, one of those helicopter beanie things. Everybody's straight up cosplayed for this meeting. <laughs> right. And um, as long as you do it responsibly in a secure manner, non-destructive, mm-hmm. um, there's, there's a few more stipulations, but it's listed very clearly. Um, then you're not doing something illegal because there's the requirement that they must have basic uh, security uh, mm-hmm. in our uh, cybercrime legislation. Yep. And um, you can't just try to wrap somebody up with an NDA. And as a bonus, if you as a security researcher finds an exploitable vulnerability in a government system, it could be a website or whatever, your reward is you get a t-shirt that says, I hacked the Dutch government and all I got was this <laughs> lousy t-shirt. I love that. Uh, can we please... Please, can we do that here? I will tell you, every hacker or security researcher I know would be like, I want that shirt. I, I <laughs> want that I'm shirt. Get that shirt. And is wait, is there a sticker too? Because if there's a sticker, I'm in. It's totally in. Totally. Totally. <laughs> so, you know, it it it's this relationship that's built. Mm-hmm. And it, we are seen as hacker responders. Yep. Not hacking criminals who saw source code or or hit f12 accidentally oh no no see it's getting scary you know if this is released around halloween oh i should also strange and scary i don't know if i can handle it anymore if i was still in the u.s for halloween this year i swear i'd wear an f12 halloween costume (laughs) and stand outside uh the governor's uh mansion i assume he's got one (laughs) 
I, I feel like you should do that anyway and just video like, and then like put the green screen behind you so that you can superimpose. I mean, it's too easy. You should do that anyway. I'm just okay. <laughs> we will be happy to share that on the National Blast podcast page and also at Keenan Skelly on Twitter. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I'm not kidding, but I'll totally do that. But, you know, honestly, all of these things, they, they all fit together. And, you know, we've talked about everything from revenge porn to privacy to international cooperation and, 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 and the underlying piece of all of this, I think is the privacy piece, right? That there is an innate privacy that every person, that every individual has and deserves to have. And that's something we fundamentally struggle with in the United States because we, again, we haven't been through the things that Europe has been through. We've been through different things and we've experienced different paths, but not quite the same paths. So our perception is definitely very different. We also live in a world of amazing tech geniuses who want to continue to feed this idea that technology is bringing everyone together. And it is, it absolutely is. I mean, the fact that, you know, you and I spoke last week or two weeks ago and you were in the Netherlands and I was here and we talked, you know, for a while about all the crazy, crazy in the world, it, that those things bring people together in a way that they never could have before. But just like Albert Einstein, you have to recognize that with, with great technology comes great privacy regulation. <laughs> and I think, that's, I think that's something that we, we just have to wrap our brain around and say, okay, we want people to be safe. We don't want, we don't want children to be being taken advantage of because of some bullshit lack of federal revenge porn legislation. We don't want, you know, we don't want Apple or Amazon to have absolutely every detail about our entire lives and make that normal. Like it's okay. It's not okay. It's okay to have details about your life that are not shared with everyone. In fact, the rest of the world considers that normal. You know, we talked a little bit about ICS and AR and VR and the investment community and, 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 and. But at the end of the day, at, in breach verification, again, I, I'm going to try really hard not to get up on my soapbox. I know I've done it for the last couple of episodes, but I'm not going to do it this time. I'm not going to do it. But all of these things, the underlying piece is a shift in a way that we in America think about security and privacy, the way that we think about how we value those things. And one of the things, Chris, that you've said a couple of times, and I think is absolutely spot on, is privacy equals safety. And that is just, that's paramount. I think that if everyone in America could wrap their brain around that concept, that we would continue to move in the right direction. And I hope that happens. I hope, you know, uh, we have more cyber secure individuals. I hope we have kids who are learning secure coding at five instead of just coding at five. I hope that, ooh, oh, shameless plug. I've been trying to get um, Lauren uh, Michael from SNL to get uh, Cisa Jen and Chris Krebs on. And, and I called you out. I called you out. I haven't forgot about you. We're gonna make this happen because this is the end of cyber October, just after Halloween is the end of cybersecurity awareness month. And too many Americans are not cyber aware. They're not privacy aware. They're not security aware. And if we're ever going to get to the point where we can have open conversations about normalizing the breach, about making it common for people to hack you and, and identify vulnerabilities so that you can fix them, 
we have to get to this point. We have to get to a point where people feel safe with all the photos on their iPhone and we're just not there yet. So let's do this. Let, let's dig in. Let's, you know, make cybersecurity mainstream and, you know, change the world, right? That's what we're here for. Absolutely. And if I remember correctly, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to me seems kind of like privacy and safety, right? Kind of, especially when you think of, you know, why, why we, why we left, you Correct. know, it, it was because we didn't want people all up in our stuff, but now here we are many, many generations later, like, Hey, um, I just went to the bathroom and I posted it on Twitter. <laughs> cool. And it's just totally a different mindset. So uh, Chris, thank you so much for coming on. This was an amazing episode. And I love getting to hear the perspective of people from other countries, people from Europe, people from everywhere, because everybody's going at this with a different point of view. And that's a good thing. That's diversity in global policy. That's diversity in global legislation. It's diversity in maybe we can learn some things from other countries who have had to go through things that we didn't have to so that we don't have to go through them. Um, so I, I honestly, it's been a pleasure. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you over the last couple of weeks. I'm totally going to make sure that you're dragged to Washington, D.C. at least once a week just so we can chat. Actually, wait, I've never been to... No, I have been in the We'll talk about that later. Thank you so much, everybody. This has been... Uh, another one of my my favorite human beings on the planet and this is the latest episode of the national blast thanks everyone bye v armor enables organizations to protect their data digital assets and themselves through a complete understanding of all applications and identities and the information relationships between them every application every user every data element Learn more at vArmor.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the National Blast Podcast with Keenan Skelly. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.